This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks, thanks for coming. It's 9 o'clock, so we'll go ahead and get started. And Stephen, could you grab that door? That'd be great. Thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here. We have some coffee in the back, and there's some outlines on that tall, round table. So if you didn't get one, go ahead and uh, get one of those. Don't worry about getting up in the middle of class or something if you want to get something. So thanks, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming to Against the Darkness, Angels, Demons, and the Unseen Realm. I was really interested to see who would, who would be interested in this topic and want to, want to come. So thank you so much for uh, coming. My prayer is that it would be an encouraging class. It would uh, be informative. I really, as I was studying, preparing, I just thought, wow, I've learned a lot studying and preparing for this, for this class before we start, I want to recommend two books that have been really helpful to me, and they're both in the bookstore. First one is Against the Darkness. As you can see, we just kind of conned the title from this class, but Against the Darkness by Graham Cole. Do what? It's a pattern. It's a pattern. Yeah, yeah. I'm not more creative than Crossway. That's, that's the problem. Yeah. So Against the Darkness by Graham Cole. This is probably the best book I would say, on the topic of angels, Satan, and demons. He's, he's, uh, he's very solid theologically and kind of walks through each topic, very biblical. It is a little bit dense. It's not a long book, but it's, uh, it's not, the, not the easiest read. It's, 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 a, little, it's a little challenging. Uh, next book, Unseen Realities by R.C. Sproul. Uh, this is really, this is wonderful, actually. It's, it's actually on heaven, hell, angels, and demons. So, you know, you get a little bit extra if you get that one. Heaven, hell, angels, and demons. And he does something similar. He just takes kind of the big topics related to angels and demons and talks about them. So these are both in the bookstore. So if you want to, there's actually now in the bookstore, on the, the floor shelf, this one that says Cornerstone U Resources. There's like featured resources, and on the back is Cornerstone U Resources. So anything that we quote or want to promote from class will be on that shelf. So you can just go and find it there. Okay, so yes, thank you so much for coming. Um, before we dive into the topic of this morning, which is angels, what the Bible teaches about angels and the unseen realm, I want to... Uh, just briefly talk about why we would cover this topic. Why, why this class? Why angels, demons, unseen realm? And then I want to do a little, a little poll afterward and see where, where people are at regarding this, this topic. So reason one, why, why cover angels and demons? Why teach on this subject? And um, the first reason is pretty simple is that in the Christian life, sound doctrine is good for our soul. So it's kind of just big picture. If the Bible teaches on any subject, learning about that, submitting ourselves to that, that subject is going to be good for our soul. So it's really, you know, it's not so much I'm just fascinated in angels, interested in angels, but it's like, it's a pretty, maybe not the main point of the Bible, but there's a lot in the Bible about angels. Angels, demons, supernatural warfare. And so like, I want to, 
humble myself before Scripture and learn what it teaches on that subject. And that goes for every, every subject in the Bible. And reason two is that I think this is actually a very relevant subject. I, I don't know, um, me personally, I, I was watching football or maybe it, was, maybe it was baseball the other day. And then in the middle of it, there was a commercial break and a trailer for a horror movie came on. I don't know, has that ever happened to you? Does anybody actually like horror movies? Just like show of hands, if you like, and it's okay, it's no, no shame, if you, if you like horror movies, like you, you pay money to go to a movie theater to be scared. Uh, it's, I, don't, I don't get it, but I get that some people are into that. Personally, I think it should be illegal to, to do a movie trailer for some horror demon movie, and my kids are sitting beside me watching the game. I'm like, this is just bizarre. Anyway, maybe that's just a personal preference. No, you guys are all like, I don't care. It's fine. Anyway, um, but what's interesting is that our culture, although we live in a secular age that's very um, opposed to like a, a personal God who's authoritative in our lives, we still live in a culture fascinated by the supernatural, fascinated by the things that we can't see, that believes that there's more to life than meets the eye. And what I want is for us to realize that, but also have a biblical picture of what that unseen reality is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's probably no shocker to you that what the Bible teaches is often different from <laughs> what's portrayed in, uh, in the media. And then I think reason three would be that this subject really, and this has affected me as I've studied it, I think it really enriches our understanding of the story of Scripture. So think of Scripture as a, as a drama, right? There, there's, there's, there's a purpose, there's, there's history where God is moving to accomplish a purpose there's, there's conflict, there's resolution, as in any good story, any good drama. And I like how Graham Cole, he, he says that the only way to truly appreciate a drama is to understand all the characters. I thought that was a pretty helpful way of summarizing it, right? Angels aren't the main characters of Scripture. They're subordinate to God and his relationship with man, but they are characters. I, I don't know if anyone's Lord of the Rings fans, and maybe this is not an apt analogy, but I think of like Merry and Pippin, you know. Merry and Pippin, they don't play the main role in the story. You have Aragorn, Frodo, Gandalf, but, but they play a role, right? And without Merry and Pippin in the story, there would be certain things that you don't appreciate quite as much. And I think, if, if, again, we want to be biblical and the study of angels and demons and the supernatural realm, it enriches our understanding of Scripture. Wow, we see this is, a, this is an amazing story, and this story tells the story of reality. So, like, the real world, the quote-unquote real world that we live in is what Scripture depicts. And so if in Scripture there's these supernatural beings that we, that we can't see, that are at war with one another, and that our lives are affected by it, that's, that's kind of wonderful, isn't it? Just to sit back and think, like, it's almost, you know, I don't want to use the term magical, but there's a sense of wonder and awe about my life as a, as a little part of this great drama that's going, going on. And I, the last the last reason, and it kind of ties in with that, we want to study this subject, 
is that it helps us cultivate a supernatural worldview. So I mentioned before, we, we live in a secular age, um, a, a, a world of the imminent. And what I mean by that is just the most important things are the things right in front of us. You know, it, it's material wealth. It's um, success. It's the esteem of others. It's our, it's our families. It's very tangible things that we can see and strive for. But the Bible's worldview is thoroughly supernatural. It says that behind what we can see, there is an entire unseen realm where activity going on affects uh, us here and now. This is, um, this is R.C. Sproul from his book, Unseen Realities. He says this, and I think I have all the quotes on your, on your outline. There is an uncompromised supernaturalism at the heart of the Christian worldview, and we must not let the world's skepticism with regard to these things affect our belief systems. We must trust and affirm that there is much more to reality than meets the eye. We must declare with Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. I think it's a wonderful quote that there's more things that more to reality than meets the eye. So just take a second and think about that. Just think about your week, your life, your priorities right now, you know, what your responsibilities are. There's more to it all than meets the eye, than just you have at the top of your head. So in this class, we'll cover, there'll be four sessions. So this class will really start with angels, and we're going to look a lot at the Old Testament, actually, because the Old Testament has a lot of interesting things to say about angels and angelic activity. Next week, Zach is going to teach about Satan and demons. So who, who is Satan according to Scripture? What role does he play in our lives opposing our faith? And then Jake Simmons is going to do the third class on Christus Victor, which is uh, basically the doctrine that Christ has come and conquered Satan, conquered the powers that are opposed to us. And the fourth class, I'll teach on spiritual warfare. So kind of like what does, we have all of these bits in place. What does it mean for living the Christian life? Kind of these supernatural forces at play. So before we dive in though to angels, I just want to at a quick caveat, this is, this is C.S. Lewis from Screwtape Letters. Anyone read Screwtape Letters? Show of hands by C.S. Lewis. I, I love that book. It's not really a theology of angels and demons. You know, I, he's never making the case this is what it's really like, you know, behind the scenes. But it's a helpful, it's a helpful uh, I guess, category to have that beyond our temptations and different things in our lives, there's an unseen reality. He says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So a materialist being someone who just says, uh, I don't ever think about angels and demons. I don't think about God. I don't think about anything supernatural. And a magician, someone who's just fascinated, and I've got I've to know how to get in touch with, with these angelic powers. And so I want to do a, just a quick, quick poll. Okay, so, uh, and, and don't, don't be bashful about raising your hands for either one of these sides, because I want to know, okay, so if you had to say 
that you lean toward one of these two sides of, of excessive, um, excessive and unhealthy interest on one side or temptation to just disbelief. I don't really think about this topic much in my daily life. Which, which would it be? So let, let's start with uh, just like kind of excessive interest. Excess, excessive interest, like I'm, I'm always thinking about this. Okay, interesting. And then uh, just kind of practical, I don't think about this very much in my daily life. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's actually, that's actually kind of half and half, so that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I know I myself probably lean more toward this side. Okay, I know God is real, and I know I'm in covenant relationship with God, but I don't think a whole lot about the supernatural realm. So this class has really helped me and affected me. Let's do one more. Do you think in our culture, so just take like kind of the Christian, we'll, we'll do Christian culture, I guess. So like in, our, in the Christian circles that we run in, either in our church or churches that think like us, would you say that the temptation is more excessive interest or um, kind of disinterest, not thinking about it? So what do you think, like disinterest? Like I don't, I think most Christians I know aren't really captivated by this. And what about like excessive interest? Okay, interesting. Yeah, that'd be good. So I'm excited to dive in. Let's, let's dive right in then to angels. Okay, so I'm going to do a definition of angels, but then the bulk of the time is going to be looking at scripture. Well, I have a lot of scripture on your outline. I'm not sure we're going to get through all of it, and so that, that'll be okay. But I really added a lot of scripture because there's a lot of speculation on this topic. I, I can't say enough. We want scripture to inform our understanding of angels and demons. So here's a definition from Graham Cole. I think it's helpful. I'm going to talk about it for a little bit. This is a definition of angels. So what is an angel? Angels are created spirits that serve God and God's images in myriads of ways in heaven and on earth. They're hierarchically ordered, but the details are elusive. That's, that's a helpful, succinct definition. Angels are created. So in, in theology and in this class, in this subject, the most important distinction is between creator and creature. Like there is, there is God and there is everything else. That's called the creator-creature distinction. So angels, while they're glorious beings, and we're going to describe them a little bit more, they are creatures. Angels are more like us than they are like God. Like, we, we have to have that in mind. God is wholly other in majesty, holiness, and greatness. And angels serve him as creatures just like us. Angels are created. And they're spirits. So angels, they don't have bodies. They will take on bodies or appear in bodily form at times. But when we're talking about angels. We're talking about um, non-bodily creatures. So like God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. He took on a body in Jesus Christ through the incarnation. And angels, they're, they're spiritual beings that they have to, if we're going to see angels 
they have to cross the divide or God has to send them to cross the divide to, um, to reveal themselves to us. And the most important part of this definition is that they serve God and God's images. This is amazing. So the, these beings exist to serve God and to serve us. Like, think about that. They serve my Christian walk in evangelism, in, in my devotion, in my pursuit of holiness. There are, God is obviously for us. He is on our side. He is with us. But there is a host of heavenly beings that are for us in our pursuit of godliness. That's pretty amazing. And then lastly, it says they're hierarchically ordered. We're not going to get into like specific details. And, and I was reading about someone in the early church that had like a list of like nine orders of angels. And it was like, this angel's up here, this angel's here, this angel's here. And I, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch biblically, you know, as you read the whole biblical council on it. But what I think is helpful is it shows like there's a lot of variation when it comes to angels and demons. We, we typically think just in terms of binaries, like we have, we have, okay, there's good spiritual beings here, those are angels, and there's bad ones here, there's demons, and that's it. Kind of like, on the right shoulder, on the left shoulder sort of thing. They're opposed to each other. Actually, as we'll see, Scripture's teaching is much more nuanced than that. It's really interesting. It's more like, kind of like an ecosystem with just, just tons of creatures that fill different roles and do different things. Now, there are, they are fundamentally either for God and His purposes or opposed to God and His purposes, but even there, they do different things, which we'll, which we'll see. So let's, um, let's jump in and see this in, in Scripture. That is the most important thing, that we see it in Scripture. So we're going to look at three key concepts in the, um, in the Old Testament. And then I think I have one for the New Testament as well. And the fourth class, spiritual warfare, we'll co really come back to the New Testament and spend most of our time there. So this is going to be largely... Old Testament theology of um, angels and spiritual realm. So I have three, three concepts, three, uh, I guess, categories of spiritual beings. The first one is called the divine council. Uh, so we'll just, we'll do a little interaction. When, when I say the word divine council, just what comes to mind? Just shout it out. What council? Okay. A war council. Good. Okay. Uh, should have tested this first. War council. Okay. What, what else? Job. Job. Yeah, good. We'll talk about Job. So war, Job. Okay. Anything else? Your divine council. Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, cabinet. Very good. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting as we're going to see in some of these texts. So um, somebody mentioned Job. Think of in there are these scenes in the Old Testament that almost read like cabinet scenes. Like, it's really strange. Like, think about God as sort of the, the king, the monarch. He, he is the only one making decisions. But there's these scenes in the Bible where these angelic beings, the divine council, kind of come around him. He'll call a meeting, and they'll come, and he'll say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Basically, how are we going to make this happen? 
And these beings are involved in going out and making it happen. So think of Job, Job 1 and 2, where God calls the sons of God, which we'll talk about, together to talk about Job and talk about the plan of the temptation of Job. But look, look at 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. I think I have this on your, on your handout. This is one of the most clear examples of this. So the background, Ahab is king, and he's a, he's a wicked king, and he wants, he, wants to have a, um, he wants to have assurance that when he goes into battle, it's going to be successful. So he's asking his prophets, like, what's, what's going to happen? And he doesn't want to hear the truth of what's going to happen. And so um, Micaiah, he, he goes and he has a vision. And here's what happens in the vision. This is, what, this is what's important. And Micaiah said... Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. So we go, the king and the council, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And, and one said one thing and another said another. I mean, just this is, this is so strange, isn't it? It's like a president in a room with a cabinet, and they're saying, oh, I think we should do this policy. Oh, I, th- I think we should do this policy. It's, it's bizarre, at least to our, to our mind. One, one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Do you see what's happening? I mean, that's a divine counsel scene. Now, I want to be really careful here. What it's not teaching is that, okay, the Lord... He's kind of open to people's opinions about how history is going to unfold. We know God is totally sovereign over what was, what is, what is to come. But God is a God of means. Just as he uses us, say, to, uh, say you have a neighbor who's not a Christian, and if God wants to reach that person, he might use you to go and reach them with the gospel. So God uses angelic beings to accomplish things on earth with political rulers. Like, think about that. And there's no reason to think God doesn't still do the same thing today. Now, we don't want to be authoritative and say, oh, you know, so-and-so made this decision. Obviously, that was a lying spirit from the Lord that did that. We want to be careful, but we also don't want to be skeptics and just think, ah, the world's just kind of, it's just going on. It'll be the same way it has been. It's really interesting Another text, Psalm, Psalm 82, and this is where the term divine counsel comes from. So look at this. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is fascinating. They're saying God is in the divine council in the midst of the gods, lowercase g, gods. That's a term for angelic beings that are there. They're not, it's not polytheism. There aren't multiple gods, right? That's not what the psalm writer thinks. But it's God with his divine counsel. And in this text, the, the people, the, the beings that have been given authority over the nations have, have gone rogue, basically, is what's, is what's happened. This is a divine, think of the divine rebellion, which Zach's going to talk about, how some angels have rebelled and have gone bad and opposed to God. These beings have, have some measure of authority over the nations of the earth. And we'll see this when Paul talks about how Christ has conquered the principalities and the powers, uh, the rulers and authorities. What, what does that mean? Well, it's talking about these spiritual beings that, that have gone bad. And that, that quote at the end, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. It's, it's strange because God is sovereign already over all the nations. Like, what's that talking about? God, arise, inherit the nations. I think what it's talking about is a day that's coming when God's appointed man, his Messiah, would come and conquer these powers. So think of, again, think of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ, because of his redemptive work, Christ has conquered these, these powers so that now the gospel will go out to all the nations and people come to faith in Christ. If you have, you know, if this is very new, it was new, it was new to me studying, and so, but I think it's what the text is teaching. And if you think it sounds very strange, just consider another example Daniel chapters 10 through 12. In Daniel 10 through 12, Daniel sees a vision and, and there's, um, there's an angel comes to him and says, I was doing battle with the prince of Persia. So this is an angel saying, I was battling the prince of Persia. That is almost certainly a reference to one of these supernatural beings that has authority over that nation that these angels are doing battle. And then this angel wasn't strong enough, so he said, then I called Michael, the archangel, to come and battle with them. It's just, it's wonderful, right? And again, I want to stress a caveat here. The divine counsel does not mean that God has rivals. God, God has no rival. But for some reason, for God's greater glory, he allows these lesser spiritual beings to remain opposed to him. Why? I think it's to show his great power and glory when Christ comes and these powers are conquered and in the last day when, when they will be finally conquered. Okay, so concept one, the divine counsel. Just want to pause. I know we'll probably run out of time to get to everything, but I just know that, that that's probably a new or strange idea. So anyone have any, any questions on that? Just as I want to pause and go slow, just as we're 
talking about divine counsel. Any, any questions about that before we move on? Or if you just want to think about it, yeah. So, um, in so many it mentions, Great question. Great question. I think that is, that's talking about a day when they will be thrown down, basically, from their power. So we know on the last day when Jesus comes, Satan and his, his minions are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So it's saying, okay, like, like men are going to be judged, so these beings are going to be judged. They're not going to continue their authority forever. And I would just say for application on, on this idea, realize that behind the injustices, behind the evil that's perpetuated in all the nations and in our nation, take, take your pick of Phil, you know, take abortion, take whatever topic you, you put in your head of this is just systematic evil. Realize that behind that, men and women are responsible for that evil, yes. But behind that, there are supernatural forces at play. I mean, sometimes I feel like that is the only explanation for how, how our culture has changed and how our culture has um, ha- almost, almost just worships evil, right, in so many different ways. And again, not just ours, but across, across the world as well. Okay, concept two is the sons of God. We, we've seen this title already in Job and in, um, in Psalm 82. But I love this title, so the sons of God. This is another reference in the Old Testament to angelic beings. It can refer to, uh, to men, to human beings, Obviously, the Son of God refers to Christ, the second person of the Trinity, but this title, Sons of God, is also used for angelic beings, and we see that in several places. Um, I do think that this just even gets stranger. In Genesis 6, there's a story where the sons of God go into the daughters of men and produce the Nephilim, the giants. I, I do think that's a reference to angelic beings. Some people would say that it's um, kind of like righteous men going into wicked women, but I do think it's a story, and I think First Peter actually corroborates that. Peter's perspective on it is that this is angelic beings. So if you want to talk about that, we don't have enough time, but you, you could come and ask me afterward. It's, it's very interesting. But this is Job, so... Job um, 38, 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is God talking to Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? So he's telling Job, basically, where were you when I created the world? Job, you have questions about me. I'm going to ask you a question. Like, you don't understand what's going on? Well, where were you when I created everything? But then this last phrase, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What that's saying, when the morning stars, that's another reference to angelic beings. The stars in this ancient context were thought to be angelic beings, or at least represent angelic beings, lights in the heavenly places. 
He's saying, think it's amazing that the angels perceived, they observed the creation of the world. Amazing. Now they were themselves created by God. So when exactly they were created, I don't know. But the angels, these spiritual beings with God, witnessed the creation of the world. Amazing. They, they observe what, what happened. The sons of God, this sort of heavenly court of God. And there's all sorts of different speculation about when angels were created. And I don't think any of it's particularly helpful. I don't think scripture tells us where, when angels were created. Okay, so third, third concept. I know we're going, we're going fast. So hopefully at the end or the end of the, end of the class, we could do some, some Q&A and think about this more. Third concept uh, for angels in the Old Testament is the heavenly host. Um, the, the most, or one of the most common titles for God in Scripture in the Old Testament is the Lord of hosts. Um, it's used 284 times in the Old Testament to describe God. Okay, what is God like? He is the Lord of hosts. So what does that mean? Well, hosts, it's a military term. It, it's saying God is the Lord of armies. He, he is the one with spiritual forces on his side. What we see in scripture in the Old Testament is that the heavenly hosts, they do two things primarily, that they worship God and they wage war. So somebody mentioned war cabinet. I think that's actually an apt picture in our minds for, we think of angels, I don't know, maybe you guys didn't grow up with these images of angels in your head of kind of like kind of nice babies or something like with wings, like playing, playing, uh, playing a harp on a cloud or something like that. Maybe we should think more about soldiers <laughs> in our mind, like, like spiritual, powerful soldiers that are out to do business against evil. So the heavenly host, they worship God and they wage war. This is Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. This is an angelic being. Seraphim means probably like burning one. This one that's like burning. Seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Covering his face because you can't look upon the face of God and live, right? He's so holy. Covering his feet because, remember, God interacting with Moses. Moses, take Take your sandals off because the ground in which you stand is holy ground. This angel's cover, I mean, he's covering himself up. And what does he say? One flew, um, covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another. These angels are calling back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled, is full of his glory. It's amazing. So these angelic beings... Like their whole purpose, these seraphim, is to worship God day and night without cease for all eternity. In Revelation 4, I'm not going to read this whole text, but in Revelation 4, so think Isaiah in the Old Testament. In Revelation 4, God gives John a vision of the same scene. I think it's, what, it's the same scene with these angels with six wings crying out, holy, holy. So think, they're doing the same thing from Isaiah to Revelation. 
Amazing, right? For all eternity, it's angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. I think that's one way that angelic beings can be maybe an example to us, right? Is this just constant posture of, of worship. God is holy. I want to give my attention to him. This, is, this also adds to the nuance that I said earlier of angelic beings. So the seraphim and the cherubim in, in the Old Testament are associated with God's presence and rule and authority in a way that other angels are more associated with like tasks that they get done. So like the angel Gabriel, you know, appears, delivers a message in the New Testament. These, these, these angels have one purpose, uh, just one thing they do all the time. It's what they were created for. Isn't that amazing? There's a whole, like we're going to go into worship here in a little bit, and we're, we're going to sing songs of praise to the Lord. You know, and maybe yesterday I was watching football or doing my thing, doing whatever with my family, and, and, and that's wonderful. I'm not saying we should be a sort of constant worship service. We have things that God's called us to do, but just think for a minute when you walk in, I'm going into a song that's been going on before I came in, that's going to be going on after I leave, that's going to be going on after I die, that was going on before I lived, like this endless song of holy, holy, holy. It's amazing. The heavenly host also wages war. This is, this is cool. I mean, this is just really cool to think that God could eliminate his enemies on the spot, just boom, vanquish, done. But God uses means, these heavenly hosts. This is 2 Kings 6, 15 through 19. And, oh man, then after that, we're going to have to start wrapping up. Sorry. Okay. Um, the heavenly host, it wages war. It says this. Mm, I'll summarize it. So it's basically Elisha is a prophet of the Lord. And it's this moment where he says his servant is afraid because all of the enemies are surrounding them. And he just says, Lord, open up his eyes to see that there's more with us than there are with them. It's just these two guys, right? And the Lord opens his eyes and sees that there's actually an angelic army surrounding them, going out to fight for them. And they're, they're saved in the moment. But I do want to read this, this scripture. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. And we'll get back to this on the spiritual warfare class. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is a picture of the angelic war that went on in heaven. And um, it's just a picture of there's more going on than meets the eye, right? There's, there's angelic war battle going on. In the New Testament, you see a heightened um, focus on angelic and demonic activity. Christ comes. There's demons that are around, almost seemingly around every corner. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is casting out demons, healing people, uh, doing this miraculous activity, and angels minister to him. 
And Hebrews 1 is a really long chapter of scripture that really deals with this fact that Christ is superior to the angels. It's odd that it would start that way, but it's actually not odd because if these angels are so miraculous and so amazing, one of the temptations would be to worship angels or think, wow, this is, this is what I'm all about. But Hebrews 1 says, they are ministering spirits sent out, to serve, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are servants of the Lord and our servants as well. Okay, so just two, I'm going to do two concluding thoughts with application. I know that was a lot of just like Bible material with a little, a little application as we went, but I really want, I really respect that you came early for a, for a Cornerstone U class to learn from Scripture. So I just, I want to uh, recognize that and say, okay, let's see what Scripture has to say about these topics. But if you're sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with tomorrow, how I read my Bible, et cetera, et cetera. Let me just give you two ideas. And it's kind of going back to the beginning. The study of angels and demons helps us cultivate a supernatural worldview, which is the worldview of the Bible. So I want to make that clear. It's not just, ooh, isn't it fun to think about like this being here and this being here and everything, all the crazy things that are going on around us. It's actually... That's what the Bible says is reality, like spiritual realm all around us. Studying this helps us do that. And finally, I think this is the most important thing. It's the thing that's affected me the most. Studying this topic helps us worship God as the maker of all things seen and unseen. Right? Think about, again, going back to that heavenly host around the throne Day and night, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts. God, God, angels are great and majestic and are fascinating, but angels are created by God. I don't know if you've ever been to the, the Grand Canyon or something beautiful that you've seen and been like, wow, this is wonderful, and then considered the God who made that. You know, I think that's what studying angels and demons does for us. God is the creator, the, the one who's worthy of all of our worship. Amen? All right, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then uh, I'll let you guys go out and get some donuts and coffee, and then uh, if you have any questions or thoughts or want to talk, I'll, I'll stick around so you can come and ask me any questions. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. God, we want, to be, we want to be people who stand upon your word, who trust in your word. And so thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord. Help us to um, avoid those two extremes when it comes to angels and demons. Help us to, like, like the seraphim, cry out this morning as we come to you in worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You are greater than the angels, and you are worthy of all of our praise. So help us praise you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web 
at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.